So let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into our lesson for tonight. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you and we praise you and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here. I thank you for your word and I thank you that it can be precious to us and that we can learn about your son from it. I pray that tonight we would have a deeper appreciation of all the things, not just that Jesus has done for us, but that he is still doing on our behalf. And I ask that you would help us to fall in love with him more deeply. Or, Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know your son, that you would make tonight the night that they fall in love with him for the very first time. And that, God, they would come to know him, that you would save them and that you would bring them into right and good fellowship with him. Send his name, I ask these things, and for his sake. Amen. All right, so let me kind of give you a review for those of you who might need that sort of thing. We've taken the first little bit, who is this king of glory? And that's the question we asked the first night. Who is the king of glory? And we said it's Jesus. Jesus is the king of glory. And everywhere we saw uh, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we saw that whenever Jesus would do something that would just blow people's mind, people would always ask, who is this guy? Who is he? Because he defies logic. He defies everything that you expect. And so who is this king of glory? Who is the king? Why is he glorious? Who is this Jesus? And we looked at the fact that Jesus is not only a man, but he is God, that he is the God man. He is God with flesh on, that he is God the son, that literally God emptied himself and took on the form of a servant and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we looked that first night, who is this king of glory? It's Jesus. And he is God and he is man. And that's important. We have to know he is God and he is man. The reason why we have to know that he's God and he's man is because we have a great offense that we have done against God. So let me kind of work this out with you real quick, just as a refresher, just as kind of a a re-going through the course. If... If I were to do something against Anthony, let's say I did something wrong against Anthony, and let's say it was really bad, okay? Now, it would be bad. Would you be upset at me? Yeah, you would. Absolutely. That's natural, and that's normal, and that's completely and totally acceptable. It's okay to be upset if someone does something wrong to you, all right? But would there be a time where you think you could just let that go? That you know what, he did something wrong to me, but you know what, I can let that go. I can forgive him for it. Do you think that could, that could work? Yeah, it probably could. And the reason for that is because I am a finite being. What does it mean to say I'm a finite being? What does that mean? I have a beginning and I have an end. I'm a finite being and I did something against another finite being, right? So my wrong has a time stamp. Because I'm finite and I did it against a finite being, it has a beginning and it has an end. If you do something against God, is God a finite being? Does he have a beginning and an end? No. What is he? He's not finite, so he is infinite. If he is infinite, is there an end to that wrath that should be poured out against you? No. So we have this great 
and this amazing offense that we've done against God. We've all sinned against God. We've all broken his law. We all deserve punishment, not just for a temporary time, as if I did a finite thing wrong against another finite being. No, I, I've done an offensive thing against an infinite being, against God. And so my punishment is infinite. There is an infinite amount of wrath that is due me. And the only person who can stand in the way of that infinite wrath is an infinite God. So Jesus had better be God. But not only had he better be God, he'd better be man because there's no way he can stand in my place unless it's a man who takes my spot. Unless it's an actual human who takes my spot. So we'd better... Understand the question, who is this king of glory? He's Jesus, he's God, and he's man, he's the son of God. We've got to ask that question. The next one, we said Yahweh is strong and mighty, and we talked, not, not, not just yet, not just yet, not just yet, not just yet. Hold on just a moment. All right. We said Yahweh is strong and mighty, and what that meant there is that he is powerful, he is strong, he is mighty. And we looked at that reality that if he's going to be strong, he's going to be mighty, there's got to be three things he's got to conquer. He's got to be able to conquer the natural things, the supernatural things, and he's got to be able to conquer sin and death itself. All right, and did he conquer natural things? Yeah. Tell me an example where he conquered a natural thing. Well, uh, just something, just something even less than that. Something natural. Did he ever run into anybody who was sick? Yes. Yeah. Well, that person wasn't just sick. He was dead. Did he ever run into anyone who was maybe blind? Yeah. Did he ever run into anybody who was maybe deaf? Yeah. Did he ever run into anyone who couldn't walk? Yeah, so a lady who had a bleeding disorder. Every single time we have an encounter of him running into sick people, he always heals them. He always makes them better. Not only that, he can only, not only can he deal with those natural things like that, but he also stood in front of wind and waves, and when it was tipping the boat back and forth, he said, stop it. And you know what the wind and waves did? They stopped it. I don't know anybody else who can do that. Andre, I know you've tried, haven't you? Have you ever gone out into a storm and just said, stop it? You just stare at it. And it says, I'm not doing anything. Look at that guy staring at me. It does. It does. So God, or Jesus, was powerful. He was strong mighty over natural. What about supernatural things? Any supernatural things he ever encountered? Demons? Any spirits? Yeah? What did he do with a demon or an unclean spirit when he would come across them? He'd cast them out. He'd kick them out of there. He'd say, be gone. And you know what happened? They would be gone. I do know people who believe that they can still do that stuff today. And they go up there and they, guys, it's, it's, it's interesting to watch. Nobody, though, and I mean this with all love and sincerity for the people who I even say this, who think that they are casting out demons. Nobody has the power that Jesus has. Nobody does. Jesus is the only one who has power over supernatural. And did he have power over sin and death? Yes. And you guys have always hit on that one. So not only is he strong and mighty, but last week we said he's mighty in battle. And did Jesus ever fight a war that he had victory over? Yeah. He has victory not only over natural and supernatural things and not only over somebody else's death, but he himself took on our sin and he himself died in his body and he himself rose from the grave victorious, defeating the greatest enemy 
the last enemy that we'll ever face. So now lift up your heads, O gates, lift yourselves up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. And I'm going to highlight or I'm going to emphasize that idea of Yahweh of hosts. And that's the first thing on your study guide, Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. So that's number one on there, Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. What does it mean to host something, guys? What does it mean to host something? If I'm coming over to your house, am I the host or are you the host? The person that I'm going to their house is the host. If I invite, um, if I invite Kaylin, if I invite you over to my house, are you the host or am I the host? I'm the host. I'm the host, obviously. We understand that a host is someone who welcomes in people. Now, that is not all that is meant here by Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. But you need to understand this, that Yahweh, the King of glory, Jesus Christ himself, he was strong and mighty. He was mighty in battle. He is God and he is man. And he has invited us to be a part of this. Not just now, but for all of eternity. He has invited us to be a part of his celebration. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift yourselves up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he? The king of glory, Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. And he's got angels, and he's got cherubs, and he's got seraphim, and he's got all these things that are singing and shouting praises to him day in and day out. But he still invites us. He still desires us to be a part of his story. And so we're going to look at, if that is true, if we've been invited to be a part of these invitees, be a part of the hosts of heaven, if we're invited to be a part of that, what's Jesus doing now? Because a lot of people get to that he died and they rose again and they just stop. There's still things that Jesus is doing even now. You guys need to understand that. Jesus isn't just sitting with his feet propped up right now, just going, it'd be really cool if uh, this thing would kind of end. I think uh, maybe we should do that soon. It's not that kind of a thing. He's not just sitting around and waiting. Jesus is actually active and involved right now. So let's look at what Jesus is doing right now. Let's talk about the nature of who Jesus is right now. Who is this King of glory and what is he doing right now? I'm glad you asked. Okay, so let's talk about the things that's going on right now or the things that happen that we know about from scripture that kind of sets the stage for what's going on right now. The first thing you need to know is after his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus, this is number two, Jesus ascended into heaven. What does it mean to ascend into heaven? To go up into heaven like to fly. So here's the thing. They, the disciples gather. Actually, let's just read it. Jesus ascended into heaven. You guys open up to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 11. Is there anyone who'd like to read those verses for us? Anybody would like to read Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11? Acts chapter 1, verses, go for it, Miss Kaylee, uh, whenever you are there. 
Samaria. What an awesome thing. Jesus ascended into heaven. He flew up into heaven like you would think of a superhero flying up into heaven. Now, when, um, or into the sky. When we see superhero movies today, uh, one of the ones that, that comes to mind was, uh, a, it was a terrible one. It was called Green Lantern. It had Ryan Reynolds in it. But one of the things that happened is that Ryan Reynolds, as the Green Lantern, starts flying around. And immediately, do you know what those people started doing? They started taking out their phones. They started videoing it. Now, these men could not video record anything that was going on. They couldn't video record Jesus going up. But then they had the incredible job of going forth and saying, hey, listen, Jesus was killed. He rose again from the grave. And then people might have looked at him and they might have said, all right, well, where is he? And you know what they would have to say at that point? He flew up into heaven. And so the Spirit came and people started believing, not because the disciples were so powerful in their testimony or not because their words just made so much sense. Because, well, the Spirit doesn't make sense. But Jesus ascends into heaven. And what we need to understand by that, guys, is that Jesus not only conquered death, but he conquered death forever. Jesus will never again taste death. Understand that, guys. Jesus has been living now as our human representative, he has been living now for over 2,000 years. And he will never die again. He will never die again. So in order to set the stage for what is Jesus doing now, we need to know, well, he's alive. He flew into heaven. We don't have video recordings or anything like that. But... We do know there is no body of Jesus anywhere. If we could find a body of Jesus, all this stuff would be just discounted and forgotten. But since we cannot find a body of Jesus anywhere, we know he's alive. We can rest that he's active and doing something. So what is he active in? Well, first thing we need to know, or the next thing we need to know, number three, Jesus is aware of everything in the world. Jesus knows all the things that are going on in our world right now. So he has a knowledge of what's going on. Well, big deal. I know what's going on. I watch the news. It's a little bit more intense than that. It's a little bit more active than that. He knows what's going on, but not only does he know what's going on, he is, an, he is actively and sovereignly controlling all things that are going on. Now, to say that immediately should cause some of you to go, wait a second. You mean to tell me that Jesus is aware of COVID-19 right now? So let me ask you guys this. I've made the statement, but what do y'all think? Do you think Jesus is aware of all the stuff that's going on right now? Yeah? Do you think he's actively and sovereignly even controlling all of it right now? You mean to tell me even COVID-19? Is Jesus aware and active and in control of even that? 
What about all the stuff that's going on in Afghanistan right now? Have you guys heard the things that are going on in Afghanistan? I told you last week a story. I'll remind some of you who maybe not weren't here. There was a pastor of a church up north who was on the phone with an underground church in Afghanistan uh, with some Afghanistan believers. And they were singing songs. And as he's talking with them on the phone, they even brought up some of the children. And some of the children said, we're not going to deny our Jesus. We love him. And then they're singing and they're worshiping. And as this pastor is on the phone with these Christians, all of a sudden he hears the Taliban bust in through the back, shooting up the entire place. And that entire underground church was killed. This is just a couple of weeks ago. While he's on the phone with them. You mean to tell me that Jesus was aware of that? You mean to tell me that Jesus was even active and in control even over that? Is that what I'm saying here? Yeah, that's what I'm saying here. So we're not going to get too much into the problem of pain tonight, but we've got to, we've got to look at it. And we've got to start moving through it just a little bit. If Jesus is aware of everything in the world right now, and if he's not only aware of it, but he's actively in control and sovereign over that, does that make Jesus a bad guy in this story for allowing COVID-19 or for allowing the Afghan or the Taliban to bust in to the Afghanistan church and kill them. Is Jesus a bad guy in this story if he's aware of that? And if he's active? What do you guys think? So I hear crickets. Is Jesus, is he just sitting, do you think he's just sitting back? Do you think he doesn't care? So what's going on here, guys? Why doesn't Jesus put a stop to it? I can't ultimately answer why he hasn't come back, why he hasn't returned. They told us when he ascended, the angel said he's going to come back in the same way that he left. I don't know why he hasn't come back yet. I would love it that he would come back. And all those who trust him long for his return. I can't answer the question of why he hasn't come back yet, but I can points you to a time in the Bible that maybe helps us understand what's going on. So you guys flip to Acts chapter 7. And let's look at verses 54 through 60. And I'm going to read these verses. Acts chapter 7 verses 54 through 60. So what happened is, you know how I told you, Jesus ascended into heaven. They flew up into the sky and that the church went around and they started telling people, well, to everyone's amazement, people started believing the message about Jesus. It's a big pill to swallow that Jesus died, that he got up three days later and then he ascended into heaven. That's a big pill to swallow. But people started believing it because the Holy Spirit started doing a work and because he started moving and he started changing people's hearts and lives. And as this started to happen, the 
the apostles gathered together. They said, we need some help with all these people who are coming to know Jesus. We need people to go and, and to help um, and to help minister to orphans and widows. We need more people teaching. And in the midst of all this, there's this guy named Stephen who kind of comes to prominence. And Stephen is going around and he's ministering to people in the name of Jesus. And they get Stephen. They get him and they grab him and they put him on trial for the things that he's saying and teaching about Jesus. And... This is what happens. Stephen stands up. He doesn't back down in the trial. He tells them all about who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And then in verse 54, that's where we're going to pick up. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and look at this, and saw the glory of God and Jesus who had ascended into heaven, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at Him. Then they cast Him out of the city and stoned Him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to His knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Does that mean he took a nap there? No, it means he died. He was killed. And who saw it? Who was standing to see it? Jesus. Could Jesus just not do anything about it? Could he just... Was he just helpless? Against the mob? No. No. But here's the remarkable thing about it, guys. This world, every bit of this world, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed at night, everything is a struggle because of sin. It is a struggle, especially as you get older, it's a struggle to wake up without a new ache and pain in your back. It's a struggle to have to go do work. It's a struggle and a difficulty when we get sick. It's a struggle and a difficulty to have friendships and relationships because I know you guys have argued with your friends before and, and those you've had relationships with, even your moms and dads, people you love. Everything is a struggle from beginning to end. And the world knows that. And the world recognizes that. But here's the incredible and the amazing reality of it. When a Christian comes up against struggles, when a Christian comes up against difficult times, when they come against the mob, they respond completely different to the rest of the world. And the world sees it every single time. Every time when someone who's a believer encounters difficulty and hard times, there's something different about the way they deal with the struggle. There's something even hopeful in the way they understand what's going on. 
the world takes notice. They say, this is not the regular way of suffering through things. Something else is going on here. I love this when we look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. And I'll read these verses again just for the sake of time. But I want you to flip there. You guys who've been with me through the study of Revelation so far, you guys, this will be familiar to you. You guys remember who wrote the book of Revelation? John, the Apostle, the Apostle John. Was John like living in the lap of luxury at the time they wrote it? No. He was, on, he was on Patmos Island. He was exiled there. He was imprisoned there. And while he's on Patmos Island, he's an old man and he's probably a little bit crumpled over from all the terrible things that the world has done to him, from all the sufferings that the world has caused upon his life. And as he's sitting there on Patmos Island, on, uh, in chapter 1, verse 10, it says this, and this is John talking, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. So who is this? Who died and is alive forevermore? Jesus. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so here's the illustration, guys. And I showed you a map if you came to the study of Revelation with me. When you look at the seven churches that were named, it almost looks like this kind of U-shaped, almost a horseshoe kind of a pattern. And when John turned around and we saw this vision, there's Jesus standing in the middle of these seven lampstands. He's in the middle of them. And at the time of this writing, the church was going through the worst suffering it had ever gone through Christians were dying like crazy and the world was taking notice that these Christians are dying differently than everybody else who dies at our hands and what's the difference and here's the difference Jesus himself in that vision was showing I haven't abandoned my church even in the middle of these struggles even in the middle of these trials even in the middle of these difficulties even in the middle of the worst persecution they'll ever go through I'm still here in the midst of them and I'm still holding them up and I'm still making sure I'm tending to what they need and what they need most in the most difficult time of their lives is they need me with them. 
And so Jesus is showing here, I haven't left, I haven't abandoned. Yes, I am aware of all that's going on. And yes, I am not only aware of it, but I am in control and I am sovereign over all those things. But I am doing it so that the world takes notice that when a Christian faces all of the sin and all the struggle and all the difficulty in this world, there's a difference. And a Christian testifies to the goodness of Jesus Christ in the middle of all of that. So Jesus ascended into heaven. Jesus is aware of everything in the world. Not only is he aware of it, but he is sovereign and he's in control of all of it. And he is going to return to end all of the suffering. I don't know why yet, but he, he, he will. And the fourth thing, and guys, this one's one that hits us right where we are at this moment. Number four, Jesus makes intercession on our behalf. What does it mean to intercede? To get, say it one more time. To go in between for someone else. That's a really, really good way of putting it. To go in between for someone else. So... Let's say again in this example, I'm going to go back to you, Anthony. Let's say that I had done something just awful against you, ugly and bad, okay? And let's say that there was no way that our relationship was ever going to come back together because of what I did was so ugly and so awful, okay? But then someone who we both knew, someone came in between us. And they worked on our behalf so that our relationship would be made right. Okay, so let's say someone stood, came in between us. Let's say Kaylee came in between us and said, I'll talk with Anthony, I'll talk with Pastor Josh, and we're going to help work through this. Okay? And all of a sudden, our relationship became right because Kaylee was able to work with both of us. Now, in that instance... Kaylee has made intercession on behalf of us. Does that make sense? She stood between in the midst of the conflict and she restored the relationship that was broken. Does that make sense? Now Jesus makes intercession on our behalf. What does it mean to say that he makes intercession on our behalf? Why? does he make intercession on our behalf? And to whom does he make intercession on our behalf? So let's kind of break those things down. Why would he need to make intercession on our behalf? Why would he need to? Why would he need to be standing between? Someone other than Aiden, speak up. It's not that I don't want to hear from you, but you're the only one talking. Someone other than Aiden. Why would Jesus need to make intercession? Come on, guys. Come on. Yeah. Because we're sinful. We can't do it for ourselves. How many of us in here have ever sinned? I mean, I have. My sin, my sin is great. 
And I don't mean like, like, like great. I mean it is huge. It is big. It is massive. It's immense. My sin is great. And there is nothing I can do about it. Guys, I'm, I'm not going to lie. There have been times this week driving that bus where I really, really struggled. Thank you very much, Ethan. You are right. That is indeed why it's called the struggle bus. There have been times when I've struggled this week and I know, I know that I have sinned this week. Not just this week, today. I know that my sin is immense and there's nothing I can do about it. So I need someone to intercede on my behalf. I need someone right now to intercede on my behalf. At this very moment... I need Jesus to do that. Now here's the thing. And I don't want to get bogged down in trying to think of it in terms of time or, or, or thinking of it as kind of a, a, a constant stream of things that, that, are, that are constantly being thrown before God. God sees all. He knows all. And He is actively working through all. So I don't want it to feel like God's being told something that He doesn't know. But we're going to walk through, we're going to walk through the scenario of, of our sin before God and Jesus is standing in between. Okay? But to do that, we're going to look at some, some verses. And I'm going to need you guys to help me out by flipping to them. So the first one... Uh, go to that next one with the, uh, there should be a several verses. Someone open up to Revelation 12, 10. Who wants that? Aiden, you got, you got that one. 1 John 2, 1. Who wants that? Go for it. Who wants 1 Timothy 2, 5? Go for it. Who wants Hebrews 7, 25? Go for it. Who wants Romans 8? Go for it. Anthony uh, 34. All right. Here's the, and, and let's just take, let's just take me, okay? Because it's really easy. I know my own life. I know where I where I live at and where I struggle and where I fail, okay? Daily, hourly, even second by second, I do not glorify God with every fiber of my being. I am not good enough. I fail God constantly. I know that about myself. I know I don't measure up. I know there's never been a single moment where I have. And there is one in particular who loves to throw that back in my face, but not only likes to throw it back in my face, but who loves to cast it before God Himself. So read Revelation 12, 10 for us. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. He accuses them night and day. There is one who 
at all times is looking to accuse me to throw that sin that I wrestle with and struggle with right back in my face and wanting to constantly lay it before the Lord and say, do you see this? He has done this. He has done that. Look at all the things he's done wrong. There is one who is always accusing me of that. And we recognize in the context of Revelation 12, it's uh, the devil is Satan himself. He is the accuser, and he lives to constantly accuse the brethren day and night. In other words, I am guilty before God day and night. But now wait a minute, you say, but, but wait, hold on, hold on. Jesus Jesus took care of that, right? Jesus took care of it. And the answer to that is yes. Yes. He took care of it. On the cross, he said, it is finished, and he meant it. He finished my sin. He dealt with it. He put it to death. He put it to shame. But I am constantly and always will be until the day I am, uh, until the day I am taken to be with God and glorified. I will constantly fail him, and I will constantly be in a position of accusation. And so I need someone to stand in between me and God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 is going to be the first verse that helps us understand where Jesus stands in the midst of that. So who had 1 John? Go for it. If anyone does sin, we have a what? What did it say? An advocate. We have an advocate in the case of my sin, when I struggle and when that little boy is throwing a piece of paper for the hundredth time on the bus and I've told him 99,000 times to stop, at that moment when my anger is rising up and when I have gone to thoughts of just just so much anger and bitterness toward that son. I need an advocate. And here's what Jesus, we'll, we'll, we'll keep, we'll keep, going for it. First Timothy chapter two, verse five. There is only one advocate. There's only one mediator who can stand in between God and man. And it's who? Christ Jesus. There's only one who can stand there. And why do you think that is? If, let's say that, let's say in that example, let's say Ava had done something, and I know Ava, I know you've sinned, I know you've fallen short of the glory of God. So let's say that in your sin, God sees that you are accused, and if I stood in between you and God, would that change anything? No. Why? Why not? Why would my standing in between not amount to anything? Because I've sinned. Because I've been lumped in that sin in the same way that all of you have. There's only one who can stand as the mediator. Only one who can stand as the advocate. And it's Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus alone is a man who never sinned. He never once told a lie. He never once disobeyed his parents. He never once did anything wrong. He never even thought anything wrong. 
So he and he alone is poised and, and able to stand in that position of mediator and advocate. What about Hebrews 7.25? He is still alive. He always lives to make what for them? To make intercession for them. Jesus is still alive today and the Bible tells us that we have an advocate. Is there only one guy who can be the mediator and it's Jesus Christ and He lives now and as He's alive, He's not just sitting back with His feet kicked up and watching the world. Right now, Jesus Christ Himself is standing in between the very wrath of God that we deserve and for those who trusted Him, He stands making intercession interceding on behalf of that because He and He alone is worthy and able. In Romans 8.34, who had that? So who can condemn us? If the accuser throws things against us and we have an advocate, a mediator, an intercessor like Jesus who stands in between us, who can condemn us? You might say, they say, okay, he stands in between us, but what does he say? Yeah, I've done wrong things. Yes, today I have done wrong things. So what is he saying? How can he stand in between? Because I've definitely done it. I've definitely sinned. How can He stand in between it? What can He do? And what Jesus does when He stands as our intercessor and what He is able to look at us and say and reassure us and what He is able to stand uh, before the Father and prove is a remarkable and a miraculous thing that on the cross, every bit of our sin, every bit of my sin was taken upon Jesus Christ Himself. My sin was transferred to Christ. Not only my sin, but the guilt of my sin. Christ took it on in His bodily form. Jesus took my sin and He died putting my sin to death. But that's not all that He did. Jesus didn't just take from me. Jesus also gave to me. And all of His righteousness, all of His goodness, all of His good deeds and good works, all of His following after God, all of His righteousness was given to me, was imputed to me. And so when God looks at the things that I have done, and when I realize yes, there is sin there, and that sin deserves wrath, Jesus stands in between and says, I have dealt with that sin. And not only that, if you look at Josh right now, you don't see the sin, the, accu- the accusation that's laid against you. You see my righteousness. You see my goodness. You see the gift that I gave Him. So Jesus constantly and always lives to make intercession for us. Right now, in this very moment, no one stands before God 
as right with him or righteous apart from the work of Jesus' intercession. Do you guys see that? Do you guys, does that make sense? Yeah. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And when we pray, uh, Drew's going to come up. He's going to lead some songs. He should be able to release some songs. And I want you guys to sing songs of praise. And I want you to actually sing. Sing out. Because what Jesus has accomplished because of who He is and because of what He's still doing as our intercessor, we have the right and the ability and the privilege to sing praises to Him. So let's pray, and then we're going to lift Him up in song. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love You, and we do praise You, and we thank You so much, God, that You sent Your Son, Jesus, to be God and man, that You sent Your Son, Jesus, to be strong and mighty, over the natural, over the supernatural, over sin and death. And Father, that you sent your Son to be victorious in battle. And God, tonight as we've looked into the fact that He is still in control, that He is still sovereignly aware of all the things that are happening, and that God, He stands as our mediator, as our advocate, as our intercessor, God, I pray that you would help us to have a deeper appreciation for all those things that he's accomplished for us and on our behalf. God, there's not a single thing that we could do to save ourselves. There's not a single thing we could do to make intercession for ourselves, to be our own advocate. But you have sent the perfect, righteous son to do that even in our weakness, and even in our ineptitude. God, He is strong in the midst of all of it. I pray that these students would love You and would love Your Son. That, Father, if there's anyone here among them who has not put their faith and their trust in You, that You would make tonight the night of their salvation. And, God, I do pray all these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus, and for His sake. Amen.